Good morning, everyone. This is really fun to be here. First of all, good job on having all those kids. That's like a lot of kids you guys have in here. That's awesome. Isn't it really? I, th- I think it's really just beautiful to see, though. Can you see all those kids? It's it is so life giving, and so keep on keeping on. Just keep keep doing your thing. That's great. Uh, I'm going to be reading and uh, speaking on Psalm 15 this morning. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to read that Psalm 15. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'll um, I'll pray, and then we'll move forward. Psalm 15, this is a psalm of David. It reads, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Um, I remember this summer I was sitting outside of John Ward Coffee on Baker Street and I was just observing people in front of me. It was a high season of tourism, lots of people coming and going, it was a very busy morning. And I was reflecting on the fact that human beings are questing creatures. Uh, one of the ways that you can think about what it means to be human is the fact that we are constantly asking ourselves questions. Maybe not the most profound set of questions, but questions drive our activity. Almost everything we do comes out of a question. And I was watching people go to and fro uh, up and down Baker Street, and I remember thinking, I wonder what questions are driving those people from wherever they're coming from to wherever they're going to. And I thought about questions like, Am I going to be late for work? And I thought about questions like, are my kids going to be okay? And I, thought, I saw that people you know, scurrying around and thought maybe they're thinking, am I going to make it? Am I going to be able to afford this? How am I going to recover from this? And I thought about maybe the fact that some people were asking more, um, more challenging questions. Is, is tonight the night I should take my life? Um... How am I going to break free of this addiction? Human beings are questing creatures because we're constantly questioning things. We're asking questions of ourselves. And it's a really um, interesting thing to become self-aware of the questions that are driving you. Because we all, we're all asking a certain set of questions, and over time, some questions become more and more dominant. Now, the reason why that's interesting to me is because we live in a culture that, in general, doesn't get too excited about questions. We're a culture that likes answers. We're a culture that prizes straight-to-the-point answers, efficiency when it comes to moving through questions. In fact, Western philosophy and our culture in general is built on the assumption that insightful people are people who have the right answers. That's how you can tell if someone's really smart. That's how you know if they're insightful, if they can provide the right answers to things. But Eastern philosophy, where the scripture has its roots, has a very, very different presumption. It doesn't presume that the smartest person in the room is the person who has 
the answers at the tip of their tongue. Eastern biblical philosophy has at its root the assumption that the wisest, most insightful people are those who are asking the right questions. And those who are self-aware of the questions and are saying, is there a better question to be asking? And then living out of those better questions. And this is really, really important, I think, because a lot of people read the Bible to get answers. A lot of people read the Bible in order, they have questions, and they want the Bible to answer and as quickly and as efficiently as possible address the questions that are pressing on their heart. So we might have questions like, man, I'm just struggling to figure out how can I make enough money and save enough money to retire comfortably. That's my question. What does the Bible have to say about that? What, what answers can the Bible give me? I am ob- I'm obsessing, you know, maybe for some people it's, I'm obs- how, do I, how do I secure a boyfriend or a girlfriend? What, what do I need to do to get that? Um, what is the Bible, what are the answers the Bible gives me so that I can take hold of those things? How do I raise my self-esteem? How do I become successful in, in my business or in my family life or in my uh, relationships? And so we often encourage people, sometimes even pastors encourage people to read the Bible in order to find answers to these questions. And that's not a bad thing. But it can be a... Um, it can be a dangerous thing because sometimes we're obsessing over questions that are important but aren't the better questions we could be asking. And if we only allow the Bible to answer the questions we're asking, we're going to miss out on something significant, which is the Bible often confronts us with the truth that often we're not even asking the right set of questions. Our questions are too short-sighted, they're too selfish, they're too small, they're not moving us into a bigger understanding of what it means to be an image-bearer of God in the world, to be a disciple of Jesus, to live as a full and abundant human being. And Psalm 15 begins with a question. It doesn't begin with an answer, it begins with a question. And you could call it the question of questions. Now, it's probably not a question that most people going up and down Baker Street... Are, is at the forefront of their mind. But this would be an example where the Bible says this question actually under, is, is underneath all the other more superficial questions that we're asking. In verse 1, David asks, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? How many of you found yourself thinking about that question this week? Right? We, church people don't even think about this question. But this is a question that's actually underneath every other impulse that we have. The question doesn't seem to be relevant to many of us. It doesn't seem to be a front-burner issue question. There's a hundred questions that we would prefer the Bible answer more quickly, more expediently for us than maybe that question. But this question is more relevant and more urgent than anything else we could come up with. Because this question strikes at the very heart of what it means to be human. Because this question is asking, who actually gets to have access to God? Who gets to be in a relationship with God? Who gets to not just, have a, not just know about God, but to live with God, to dwell in his presence? Who gets to live in the presence of God? That's an incredibly important question. 
And the Bible says there are, the questions that we have are legitimate, but they need to be grounded and founded on our answer and engagement with that question. Who has access to God? God's sacred tent refers to the tabernacle that the Israelites were commanded to build out in the wilderness during their wanderings. God's holy mountain, some of your translations might say holy hill, refers to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where at this time, when David's writing the psalm, the Ark of the Covenant has come to rest. And so these were two very powerful Jewish symbols of God's um, unrestrained power and presence localized in a place that you could point to and say, there's God's Shekinah glory. Who gets to draw near to that? Who gets to go into that tent and experience intimacy with God? Because David understood what a lot of people in our culture have become hardened to, which is the fundamental human quest is to somehow access and get intimacy with God. We think what we want and what we need ultimately is a, new, is a boyfriend or a girlfriend. What we're really looking for is fellowship with God. We, we think what we most need is enough money to do X, Y, and Z. What we're actually striving for is intimacy and a connection to God. And the text is really insightful in helping us to clear the rubble from all these important but secondary questions to the ultimate question. Who gets to dwell with God? Who has the right to intimacy with God? Who has the right to have all their desires satiated by the glory and the holiness and the goodness of God? An insightful person is someone who becomes aware that that question, that quest within their soul is paramount. And an insightful and wise person is someone who gives increasing time and energy and attention to that question and living out of that question. So maybe we can begin to see how we may come to the Bible with questions like, when am I going to get married? How can I ensure my children are healthy and happy and successful? And, and God, through scriptures like Psalm 15, is challenging us and saying, those aren't the primary questions. The primary question is this. How do I access the power and the presence of God? Because where God's presence is, is unrestrained joy, there's unrestrained healing, there's unrestrained hope, there's unrestrained grace. And so if we could get access to that, all of our secondary issues would fall into their proper place. But there's actually a really complicated problem in trying to access the presence of God. And David knew it, and that's why he's asking this question. And that is this. When God expressed his desire to be close to Israel, it was always asterisked. It was like, you are my people, I'm going to be with you, but we can never be too close. You don't get full access to me, because I'm a holy God. And I burn with a glory and with a purity as, that is so intense that the closer you get to me, the more dangerous it is to you. And if you actually were to stand unprotected in my glory, you would be obliterated because you're a sinful human being. And in the full, unrestrained presence of God's glory, all sin is destroyed and obliterated. And so what Israel often experiences when God draws near is this sense of attraction. We want to be close to God, but God is awesome and dangerous. And his holiness and his presence is actually, in some sense, 
um, terrifying. In Exodus 19, when God leads his people to the base of Mount Sinai, his holy presence, it says, is like a fire on the mountain. And no one but Moses can even approach the top. God even says, God puts warning tape around the mountain. He says, you're not even allowed to touch the base of the mountain. No one goes even close. Moses is going to have spiritual protection, so he won't be destroyed. But that, that protection isn't offered to anybody else. So don't even touch the base of the mountain. You've got to stay away. It's like the police do not cross sign. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is given this powerful vision of the glory of God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on his throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That's a worship service. That's a real worship service, right? You guys are worshiping, and there's like an earthquake, and there's smoke. And you guys, is this place going to come down? We like this building. This is a nice place. But is, this, is the glory of God actually going to overwhelm the foundations of this literal building? In the Old Testament, when the text tries to indicate something, it uses um, the Hebrew word, it, it, it repeats Hebrew words in degrees. So in the Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything, and each day it says God looked at what he made, and it was good. The Hebrew word is tov, it means good. And then at the very, very end of the, of the first chapter, it says God looked at all that he'd made, and your translations will say, and it was very good. But that's not a, that's a, not a, incredibly accurate translation. It would be a confusing accurate translation because what it would say is God looked at everything that he had made and it was good, good. It was tov, tov. It's doubled. So in Hebrew, what you want to do when you want to emphasize something, you don't say very. They didn't have words like that. What they would just say is double it. There's only one time, there's only one, um, there's only one dimension of all of created reality where God ever repeats one word in triplicate. And that is when it's talking about God's holiness. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. He's not holy. He's not even holy, holy. Like, pretty holy, very holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's beyond category. You could stretch your imagination as far as it could go to try and hold together everything you know about the grandeur and glory of God, and the closest you'd get is like holy, one holy. But when God reveals himself, his majesty is so impressive, it's so overwhelming that the angels themselves who are created perfect beings, they say, we've got to create a different kind of dimensionality of this word. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When Isaiah encounters this holy, holy, holy God, what does he say? Cool. Thanks, God. I'm really, I really appreciate you allowing me to be in your presence. This is great. Feel, feeling the love, God. This is awesome. Thank you. Great to be here. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me into your, your front porch, into your living room. He doesn't say that. He says, woe to me. He puts a curse on himself. I, woe to me. I am ruined. Some translations say, I am undone. The Hebrew hints at this word that says, I'm, 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 um, I'm being obliterated from the inside out. 
I'm, 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 I'm being rended. I'm, the, the very fabric of my being is being pulled apart. I'm in the unrestrained presence of God. I don't deserve to even be alive. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I curse myself. I'm destroyed. Isaiah experienced what David knew and much of what Israel had learned. God was the source of their life. God wanted intimacy with them. They were made for relationship with God. But how in the world could a human being exist in the presence of this kind of holy, fiery, pure love? Never mind dwell in his presence. How could you just survive for a moment, yet alone even imagine being able to dwell and have a relationship with this God? David gives the answer. He says, one whose walk is blameless, who does, not, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those, those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, and does not change his mind, who lends money to the poor with no interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. And David adds this promise. He says, whoever does these things will never be shaken. And some translations use the word moved, will never be moved. David's saying that kind of person can be absolutely certain they will never be moved out of relationship with God. They will never be removed from God's presence. They can know, know, know that they have a relationship with God and that is eternally secure. So I want you to think about what David is saying. David says only a person who has complete and perfect integrity, integratedness, complete and perfect um, integratedness of the human personhood, righteousness before God, righteousness before their neighbors, righteousness in the context of creation, righteousness in terms of their own interior mechanisms of their soul and of their mind. Only one with that kind of holy integrity has access to God. And remember, these were psalms. And this is Psalm 15, and it's a psalm of ascent. This psalm would have been sung on the way to temple worship and would have been one of the key songs that you would have been singing as a family on your way to synagogue. And that's, this song was used to prepare your heart through a question. So when people were going to worship God, they were singing songs that said, Who gets to dwell with God? And that's how they entered the worship service, with that song and that sense of who gets to draw near to this holy and great God. That's what was fueling their movement into what we would think of as corporate worship. It wasn't, I wonder if the sermon's going to be good today. I wonder if they're going to sing the songs I like. I wonder if so-and-so is going to be there. I hope so. What am I going to do if they're not? Oh, I hope this person doesn't talk to me after church. It's super awkward. What am I going to say? I've got to think of something to say. Would it kill me to skip this Sunday? Maybe we should just turn the car around. It's been a crazy morning. Let's just reset and we'll try again next Sunday. See, going to worship for a Jewish person was about recognizing that, although it didn't happen very often, you may have the experience of Isaiah. You may, in the middle of worship, God might... Um, open the heavens and reveal things to you in a way that is just life-changing and transformative. So you, you went into worship asking the right questions. You got your mind off of the wrong questions and started asking the right questions so that your heart and your mind, your whole body was attuned to saying, God, 
I want to be here and available for you to speak to me, change me, challenge me in any way you see fit. So let's come back to that question. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live in your holy mountain? David says, only one who is totally righteous. What is the point of this psalm? What's the, like the, the thing, the takeaway? What's the big takeaway of Psalm 15? The way you answer that question will reveal a lot about what you think it means to be a Christian. And it will reveal a lot about how you think you're supposed to read the Bible. Because what the point of this whole psalm is really tips the hand and reveals what you understand the Bible to ultimately be about and how you're supposed to read and respond to it. Do you think the Bible is ultimately about what you have to do in order to access God? Or do you read the Bible as God's revelation of what he's done to access you? Is the Bible primarily about you and what you need to do to get to God? Or do you read it primarily as about God and what he's done to get to us? See, if you think the Bible is basically what you need to do in order to get close to God, you're going to read Psalm 15. The application of Psalm 15 is going to be pretty straightforward. You're going to have to reform pretty much every dimension of your life. You're going to have to become and will yourself and, and change yourself and do whatever it takes to become a person that is blameless and faultless and has complete integrity. And then if you do that, you'll have access to God's presence and you won't be moved. And a lot of people read Psalm 15 like that. But if you read Psalm 15 like that, it's a very defeating psalm. Look at the list of things it says not it's, not, it's not a buffet. Pick a few of these things that work for you. All of these things have to be just synonymous with your life and not for seasons in its entirety. Pick one of the things that David talks about. Just one. You're telling me you're going to get through the next year just being faultless and blameless in one of those areas? And now you have to look at the multidimensionality of what David is putting before you and saying, this is the kind of person that you need to be if you're going to access God's presence. If you, were to, if you were to read the scripture like that, if you were to read Psalm 15, if you were to apply it to your life like that, it would be the most crushing, defeating, hopeless, discouraging portions of scripture, I would argue. Because you can't live out Psalm 15. You can't even live out, you and I can't even live out a part of it, not even a fraction of it. And that means, according to Psalm 15, you can't live in God's presence. You don't get access to God. Neither in this life nor in the next. You don't get to dwell with God. The most you could hope for is a relationship where God is in your life, but God is always far off. You never get to access the full grandeur and glory of God. Because you're cut off because of your sin. Because you aren't even close to being the kind of person. And I'm not even close to being the kind of person that Psalm 15 speaks about. So if you read this as being about you, what you need to do to access God, 
It's defeating. It's discouraging. And all, it's just bad news. This is a bad news psalm. If you read it with yourself being the major player in this psalm. But thank God this psalm is not about you. And it's a good news psalm if we read and understand that it's not about us. And, and it's totally not about us. And thank God that it isn't. In Luke 24, after Jesus is resurrected, he reveals himself to the, to the disciples, and they can't really make heads or tails out of what's happened. They're trying to, they have nothing in their worldview that's anticipating one person is going to be resurrected in bodily form, and they saw their rabbi, teacher, leader get crucified by Rome. They're, they're shell-shocked, you know, to put it mildly. But Jesus says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus tells him that, tells him that in Luke 24. The entire Old Testament, but he specifies the Psalms, are about him. Now all scripture in the Old Testament points to Jesus. But Psalm 15 is such a good example of how a scripture can be turned from a bad news scripture to something incredibly good when we understand that it's not about us. It's somehow pointing us towards Jesus. This is a psalm about what Jesus has done on our behalf so that we can access God. Look at what it says. Lord, who might dwell in your sacred tent? Who can live at your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from the heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. The Bible's witness is that there is only one person who has ever lived who fulfills all of these requirements. There's only one person who actually could enter the full, unrestrained presence of God without being destroyed, and that is Jesus. And so the hope of this psalm is not that if you try really, really hard, maybe you could access God, maybe you could get to heaven, maybe you could take hold of eternal life, maybe you could um, kind of force God's hand to being in a relationship with you because you've proven yourself, you've established yourself, you've justified yourself before God, the hope of this psalm is that while you were never qualified to dwell in God's presence, Jesus lived out Psalm 15 on your behalf, and now those in him can have complete unrestrained access to God, as if they were the perfect embodiment of Psalm 15. That's a significant of passages like Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And you can now enter into God's presence and you get to live with God beginning right here, right now, but extending forever. Why? Because, because of your righteousness? No. Because Jesus has taken upon himself all of your Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is you and I. Read that this afternoon. That's you and I. Jesus took upon himself Psalm 14 and he gave us his Psalm 15. So we get access, not because of how good we are, but because of how good and gracious he is. And that means that if you're a Christian, 
And this is helpful when people ask the question, well, are there many ways to God? There's one way to God. Be perfectly righteous. Be perfectly blameless. That's the, that's the way to God. It doesn't matter what your worldview is or what your religion is. That is the only way to God. What makes the Christian gospel distinctive is to say one person actually did that. And now, through him, and if people are in him and receive his forgiveness and receive his righteousness, they can have access to God. So only if you are a Christian can you actually have that kind of access to God without fear of rejection, without fear of obliteration, without fear of condemnation. But it's because of what Jesus has done for you. So again, what's the point of Psalm 15? What's the takeaway? Is it a psalm about having, of pursuing tremendous integrity and having complete holiness and integrity in order to access God? And the way that I would answer that is yes, but no, but yes. Yes, that is the point of Psalm 15. You have to have complete, utter, holy integratedness to access God. But that's not really the point because you, you and I can't do that. We're the the farthest things from being spiritually whole and integrated. That's not the point. But there is a hope. The yes is yes. There is one who did it. And he can impute. He can extend. He can give over. He can cover us with his righteousness so that God sees us through and in Christ. Jesus lived with holy integrity. And in him you are qualified to live a life of closeness to God because of what he has done. And when that truth, the gospel, when that begins to take root in your heart, the interesting thing is you will grow and you will want to become a person of greater integrity. You will want to grow. The things that David talks about, those will become passions of yours. But it will be coming out of a different space because you won't be doing them to try and be good enough, to try and please God. It won't be done simply out of sheer willpower. I just need to be a better person. need to somehow just will sin to die in my life and will the good things in my life to to take root. It's about saying, Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting. Now I get to live out of his love, out of his grace, and I get to learn from God, how do I become like Jesus? I want to become like Psalm 15. I'll never do it this side of heaven, but I want to do it because the pressure's off because in, in him, I'll never be shaken. I'll never be moved. So even when I'm imperfect, even when I fail, I don't need to fear condemnation from God. I now have full access to God. I cannot be shaken because of what Jesus has done. So I'm not going to live out of self-righteousness. I don't need to live out of fear. But because of the beauty and glory of Jesus, his spirit working in me creates a whole new desire to be this kind of person. Not in order to access God's presence and grace, but as a result of experiencing it. The great truth of Psalm 15 is that we can live out of an entirely new question in an entirely new way because of what Jesus has done for us. So I invite you this week to begin asking and reflecting on that question. Who gets to dwell in the presence of God? Who has access to God? And to remind yourself, you do because of the grace and glory and goodness of Jesus. Now live out of that love, live out of that justice, live out of that hope, and extend that to other people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for good news. We thank you that we are not the center of Scripture's story, that um, 
our efforts, however noble, aren't what um, justify and secure us in our relationship with you. We are a broken people, God. We do not deserve to be close to you in this life, yet alone to be able to look forward to an eternity with you. And we give you thanks that it's through Jesus this is all made possible. Help the, the depth and the breadth of that truth to take root in our hearts and help us to live out of that knowledge. And help us, give us wisdom and insight and discernment so that as we come across other people in our life who don't know you, who are living in such a way that they're trying to figure out how to access God, they're trying to figure out what they need to do to have a, the, the abundant life that we would point them towards you, God. Give us grace and wisdom to know how to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.